Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Patrick Catanzariti gets real with the latest in mixed, shared, augmented and virtual reality. But first up, here's the news. Tired of chronic fatigue syndrome? Myalgic encephalomyelitis is characterised by extreme exhaustion all out of proportion to the amount of exertion. Immune system problems, pain, sleep problems, memory and concentration issues and a whole long list of possible symptoms that vary between people who suffer from the disease. The cause is unknown, but it looks like there are several pathways that can lead to the same illness. One thing they've had in common is the complete lack of an effective treatment. Until now. Rituximab is a treatment for the blood cancer lymphoma and the autoimmune disease rheumatoid arthritis. It suppresses the body's immune B cells. It's been found that the drug relieves the symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome in two-thirds of subjects. Repeated infusions have kept the symptoms away for up to five years in some patients. Researchers at the Hokkaland University Hospital in Bergen, Norway, treated a patient with lymphoma, who also had chronic fatigue syndrome, in 2004. Six months after treatment, the patient's myalgic encephalomyelitis symptoms improved. In 2015, trials of 18 out of 29 people with chronic fatigue syndrome responded to the drug. 11 of those people stayed free of symptoms for 3-5 to five years with repeated infusions of rituximab. The results strongly suggest that antibodies are involved in causing symptoms. Relief started four to six months after the first dose of rituximab, approximately the time it would take for existing antibodies to be cleared from the body. Participants relapsed after about a year, roughly how long B cells take to regrow and start making new antibodies. The researchers' theory is that an infection may trigger the body to produce antibodies and these then turn against a person's own tissues. The team suspect that these antibodies may stop blood from circulating properly, preventing people from getting enough oxygen, which explains their extreme fatigue. The idea that these antibodies are targeting blood vessels may explain why patients with chronic fatigue syndrome have very low blood pressure after anaerobic exercise and produce waste lactate from exercise earlier than healthy people which stops their muscles working properly. While the 2011 study included a placebo, the most recent trial of 29 people did not, leaving it potentially vulnerable to the placebo effect. A patient who unknowingly took the placebo in the 2011 trial and took the actual drug in the latest trial says the difference has been dramatic. She's well enough now to restart her master's degree and she got a full-time job when she graduated. The rituximab results strongly suggest that chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, is an autoimmune disease. A new study with 152 people is now underway. 
and includes a control group. If the results continue to be promising, then there may finally be a treatment that helps two-thirds of people who suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome, while the understanding derived from the research provides hope for the others. The paper was titled B. Lymphocyte Depletion in Myalgic Encephalopathy Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, an open phase 2 study with rituximab maintenance treatment, and was published in the journal Public Library of Science, PLOS One. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. It's been a year since I last sat down with Patrick Catanzariti, founder of Dev Diner, to talk about emerging technology. I met up with him in Sydney's Spice Alley and began by asking him what's his take on where augmented and virtual reality have gone in the last year. Well, right now it's actually quite cool. It depends on who you talk to, though. Some people see it as virtual reality kind of failed in a way. Like, everybody thought that, you know, PlayStation VR was going to come out and everybody was going to buy one. And so to be this big mainstream thing now where virtual reality is out and cheaper for people to get to, so everybody would get it. That didn't quite happen, but... I think it's more as like an early kind of pre kind of disclaimer here. I think people have misinterpreted it a little bit. So I think VR is still growing. It isn't a dud in the slightest. It's actually getting quite advanced and quite cool. But for the initial naysayers, I just wanted to point out that where I see it at the moment is that it's a lot more like if you look at other early consoles and things, you generally largely rely on kind of word of mouth and people going and trying it first. So I think we're still in that phase where you've got a few people now who've got VR headsets. And by a few, it's actually like a lot. Gear VR headsets from Samsung alone, there are like millions out there worldwide. But with things like PlayStation VR, I know for a fact going to conventions and stuff where they're booked out for like people trying to have a go and try them out. And I think personally, the batch of people who've bought them now are going to be the ones who are the early adopters who will have all their friends come over and they're all going to try the PlayStation VR. The kids especially are going to be like this. I mean, parents are going to go out, aren't going to go out and buy kids a PlayStation VR thing if the kid didn't even really know what it was. But if their one friend has the PlayStation VR and they try it this year, then upcoming in Christmas and birthdays is when you're going to start getting a ton of more people going, oh, hey, this guy had a PlayStation VR, it was cool, I want one now. So I think throughout this year, and especially Christmas coming up next year, well, Christmas this year now, we're in 2017, I think is going to have a lot more of the PlayStation VR kind of people purchasing it, and potentially the Vive and the Oculus Rift, depending on how easy they are to get to and how much the price drops. But off that tangent, Judging based on that alone, and me saying that it isn't completely a dud and we're kind of still ramping it all up, one of the areas that I'm really excited about, which is going to start happening throughout this year and the next few years, is moving away from the irritating kind of desktop VR concepts, where you have to plug in your VR headset into a computer, has to be a high-powered PC, and you kind of have cords everywhere, and people find that a little bit difficult to kind of set up, 
and have in their house because you kind of need the sensors that are laid out across the room so they can tell where you are. All of the VR headset manufacturers are looking for the mobile tracking solution where you can track it without needing these external sensors where if you are just kind of putting on, say, a Gear VR headset, the ideal solution is that there'll be a camera looking out from where you are standing and it'll be able to map the room and say you are looking at this point right now and it'll map your experience in the VR based on your position in the room without needing external sensors. And while it sounds really kind of pie in the sky, like, yeah, how are we going to do that? And, you know, surely if it was that easy, they would have done it already. But Microsoft are already doing it. So they've got the HoloLens, which is a wonderful augmented reality headset that is still very early days and expensive and difficult to get a hold of. But their tech already has that sort of tracking. So what they're doing is trying to leapfrog everybody a bit by also licensing out a virtual reality platform, which a whole bunch of other OEMs out there who manufacture computers, people like Dell and many others, I think Lenovo and things are doing one too, they've got a Microsoft VR kind of headset standard, I guess, uh, which already has that sort of tracking in it that they just kind of took it from the HoloLens because when you think of augmented reality, it's very hardware intensive and you kind of need to be able to track where you are in the room because it's trying to place things literally in your room. So it needs a lot more accurate tracking than VR does. So them taking the HoloLens tracking and putting it in VR kind of is giving VR the superpower tracking that it didn't really have before. So that alone, I think, is going to start pushing all the other VR manufacturers to really start to like freak out and really kind of get it going. And Oculus already got a prototype as well that they showed at one of their last events. So they're trying it. And Vive at HTC Vive uh, with Steam are also trying it. So that could also be another thing which will eventually lead on to really cool stuff and a lot more faster adoption. If you have like much less setup time, you can just say, here is a VR headset. You just put it on, and it'll work. That will make life a lot easier in general. So. That's kind of part of the exciting thing. There are so many things that are exciting in VR and AR, so it depends how long you want me to go for. <laughs> well, one of the things that's happened in the last year is there's been a whole slew of ever cheaper 360 degree cameras on the market as well. So is that gonna feed into this market for viewing them? I think it'll definitely play a part. I think there is a current kind of dilemma where the cameras that are relatively good quality are still really expensive, but they're also starting to become more of a mainstream thing. At least like you can just head out to JB Hi-Fi or another kind of tech store and just go out and buy a 360 camera, which was like impossible before. You would ask store staff if they had any, and they'd probably not even have any idea what it is. So that alone is already really good signs. They're getting cheaper. You can buy ones online from like Chinese companies and stuff which can be under a hundred bucks. And even though the quality might not be perfect, it's still like really good for a quick kind of showing what's possible. And if you are just a regular person who just wants to kind of have the novelty of being like, I just filmed in 360 and it was fun, you can do that. The fact that Facebook and YouTube are putting in 360 video and really trying to push it as like a thing is also helping people understand the concept a bit more. So it is slightly more likely now that if you give somebody 360 video, they'll understand that on Facebook, they have to click and drag to look around. Before, that would have confused people like crazy. So it's baby steps. I think 
the more people start seeing the 360 video in their headsets or in other people's headsets, the more they'll start to kind of get the idea behind it. Another thing that I think is actually going to help is when 360 video starts getting used for more, I guess, important uses, more, I wouldn't say life-changing, but in ways where it genuinely is a better solution than a regular photo. And the best example of this would be all of the controversy at the moment around fake news and people saying that, you know, events are being misrepresented and, oh, if only you had like a specific different angle in the photo, then you would see that, for example, I don't want to bring him up, but a well-known politician who doesn't like being called a politician in another place around the world right now, talking about the crowds that he has, that if you had 360 cameras and you could 360 video something, then the entire kind of position around, say, the media kind of, or photographers in general with the media being selective over what they're photographing goes away. Because if you take that kind of control from a photographer and just say, well, here's a 360 photo of the event, you can look around and see it from all angles and you can see what really it looked like. That is a much more engaging and real use case which people would actually want. So uh, I think it will just take a bit of time and it may be difficult. Like I don't know whether the media themselves would be people who push it, depending on their agenda, but there will be media outlets who will say, no, we want to be telling people what they should be seeing and we want to be controlling that content. But there'll be independent media and more kind of either just lone rangers who are going out there trying to take 360 video and stuff of events. Once that starts happening and really picking up steam, I could see it becoming a lot more of a mainstream thing because if you are looking at, say, a big event, even if it's not a really controversial event, even if it is something like, say, the latest Taylor Swift concert or something like that, and you're having to choose between either a single photo that you can see of the event of Taylor Swift looking all like pretty and looking really involved in you know, her performance, or you can kind of see a 360 photo and if you see a 360 photo of that same event, but you can genuinely just look at what you're actually interested in. If you were, say, writing a story about the event and you wanted to say there were this many males versus this many females at the event, you can't do that in just a casual photo which just showed Taylor Swift and like a crowd of people's back of their heads. But you can do that if you've got a 360 image of the place, preferably if you've got lots of 360 images of the place but then you're giving the control to the person who's viewing it rather than to the person who took the picture. So once that gets somewhere, then the idea of viewing them in VR headsets will kind of become a more natural thing where, yeah, if you want to look at them, you can look at it on desktop, but you build it faster and a lot easier to kind of just put on a quick VR headset and actually see it properly. The other thing that's going to help with adoption of both VR headsets and these 360 videos is the fact that Slowly, they're starting to enable live streaming of 360 video in Facebook, and I think YouTube are also doing it too. So that'll make it a lot more common for big events. Um, if they're big newsworthy events, or even things like music festivals and stuff, it'll start becoming more and more common that if you want to watch them, as exciting as, say, Periscope is, and all of the live streaming kind of apps, being able to live stream in 360 video is a lot more exciting for people because then they can genuinely feel like they're there and all the aforementioned kind of benefits 
still apply. So with those, the real benefit is going to be in VR headsets because you don't want to sit there watching a 360 video live stream where you have to pan around with your mouse cursor because that's kind of overkill. You're spending all this time kind of downloading all this data for stuff you're not actually seeing. Whereas in VR, you just quickly turn your head and you can kind of see stuff. So the benefit's more there. I think it's a different art form as well. I think that's part of what will get it all adopted. So if you're a photographer, you're framing your shot. If you're a cinematographer, you're directing the audience's attention. It's an art of telling the story. And maybe all these people playing with it need to develop a new art of telling a story with 360. And when that art is developed and effective, then everyone will jump on board. That is definitely true. I look forward to seeing what they do. <laughs> I think mixed reality is very cool and something which not a lot of people are thinking of. So, so, so what's mixed reality? It's another term which we like kind of throwing out there because the tech world likes just trying to introduce more terms to confuse people. Mixed reality is very much what HoloLens and a lot of the other augmented reality companies are trying to do. But it's, it's very wide ranging, so I'll say why I'm excited about it. If you look at the typical idea of augmented reality, most people think of things like Google, the Google Glass headsets and how you kind of had like a heads up display basically that's over your world and you can kind of see that. And that could give you, say, alerts, and it could kind of, say, even be like a GPS thing that tells you to go left, go right, you're at your destination, congratulations. But mixed reality is the concept of taking augmented reality, and technically it is still augmented reality, even though companies like Microsoft will try and tell you it's not, uh, which I think is more of a marketing thing. It's the idea of making augmented reality genuinely look real. So trying to make it look like, when you look at the table, there is actually an augmented reality thing on your table. And so, it's less of a heads-up display and more of a put virtual things into your world. But it's also getting taken a step further in the world of virtual reality. So there is a big push at the moment by a lot of independent kind of developers who I'm starting to see all kind of experimenting with this, where we've got a lot of virtual worlds now that aren't linked together. So we've got, say, people in the HTC Vive. If you're playing a virtual reality game or you're exploring a world in virtual reality or you're drawing um, in 3D and tilt brush and stuff in virtual reality. Nobody else can really experience that with you unless they look at a flat monitor and kind of can see vaguely what you're doing. But that experience isn't really shared in any way. And we've all got a whole assortment of different headsets. So you can have somebody with a HTC Vive headset and you can have somebody with a HoloLens headset. And the HoloLens headset, they'll be able to see all around them and they'll see you just looking like an idiot kind of drawing in VR, but not see what you're doing. And so what they're trying to do and what one person has, one, I think it was a few developers, uh, worked together to put together a prototype where you could have somebody in a HTC Vive create objects, and then you could see what they're creating in the HoloLens. And so they would see a completely virtual world where they don't see you at all. They kind of saw an avatar that just kind of showed whereabouts the person who had a HoloLens on was positioned in the room. And the person with the HoloLens could see the object you're creating with the vibe. So they could create like cubes, uh, I think in the prototype, and they create cubes with their hands using the controllers in the virtual reality world. And then somebody with the HoloLens could then see them moving their hands and creating the cubes in real time, but they see the cube in real worlds, kind of just in the same space. And so that'd be really confusing to visualize. If you want to Google it, you can just Google shared reality, I think. HoloLens and HTC Vive, and you kind of see the demo. But why that's exciting is there's a lot of these sorts of projects going on right now, which is more trying to take away the barriers between all the different devices we've got and say, well, why can't we 
share the same objects in virtual space with a whole range of different headsets. And so if you're working in the future with somebody who's got a HTC Vive headset and you've got a HoloLens or a Meta 2, if you don't know what a Meta 2 is and you're listening, you should just Google Meta 2 augmented reality headset and you'll see lots of Patrick's excitement. But there are so many different ones out there that having that actual virtual data and that actual kind of workflow that you've got go across many different things helps both socially with like stopping VR from becoming this really isolating environment to something where you can actually share stuff with a whole bunch of other people. There was also a really cool thing with the HTC Vive and smartphones where another demo was a game, like a shooting game. Nobody has like say four different HTC Vive headsets in their house, so you can't really play a multiplayer game with four people in a Vive because you need four Vives. So a solution that they made was one person has a Vive and say the other three have smartphone apps which they can kind of attach to toy guns. And on their smartphone app, they can see your virtual worlds and they can be tracked to see where in the space they are. But they kind of look through the smartphone as their viewfinder where they can kind of see the virtual world through the smartphone. And the person wearing the Vive can see everything completely immersive, but they can all play together. So people with the smartphones can shoot with their guns at somebody in VR. The person in VR would see them all as like virtual characters they would see him as a virtual character through their smartphone, but they can all play together in a kind of mixed reality way. So it's an area of mixed reality which not as many people if you speak to, especially at Microsoft and stuff, will probably mention yet because it's not really mainstream, but I think it's somewhere where it's going to go. Microsoft, I don't know if it was Microsoft themselves or a developer, I think it was probably an independent developer. We're also working with things like combining HoloLens with a desktop app, so they were able to have an experience where they can wear the HoloLens, but they can also use the Microsoft Surface Book. Oh no, I think it was an even bigger one that Microsoft just released, the big screen one, which I wish I remember the name of. But it is a mixed experience where they could control the experience with their HoloLens, so they could see a 3D model of a car, but then they could use their giant tablet to edit the car and kind of change textures on the car and draw on the car and stuff, and then see the same changes they did there. Uh, reflected in their virtual world in their HoloLens headset. So there's a lot of that happening, and I think it's going to start becoming more and more of a thing just because it makes life a lot easier. I mean, who's going to use a headset if the only use of the headset is things they'll ever only ever see in the headset? So joining it to a whole bunch of other stuff is actually really cool, and I think we'll soon become the norm, and then we'll all wonder why we didn't just do it to start with. And is there still going to be a place for the phone-based Google Cardboard type things like the Viewmaster you can now buy in Target in Australia and other shops? I love those headsets. Um, but I think they'll be, to an extent, I think eventually they're going to die out. Not because they're not useful in any way, but more because I think over time it's going to become very commonplace to just have headsets that we'll always be wearing anyway. So the idea of having a smartphone is likely to be slowly made irrelevant. And then those Google Cardboard headsets kind of aren't necessary anymore because you don't really have a smartphone to put in them. That's still many years away, but I can see that being the thing which slowly takes away the Google Cardboards and stuff. But Google at the moment, I don't think are going to be moving away from it too quickly because they just released their Google Daydream platform. So the latest Google Pixel phone that came out has a whole different VR standard, which Google are trying to push for every other Android manufacturer to meet, which basically is called the Daydream, I guess it's a standard, don't know what official term they use, where they say, to be able to say they're Daydream compatible, they have to have this level of specs on their smartphone 
And so then companies can't really say, well, we're daydream compatible unless they've got that kind of minimum spec that says the smartphone is going to be fast enough, it's going to have a high resolution enough display, and it also needs to be compatible with a new controller that Google have created, which is like a really small, tiny controller. So the Daydream headsets are very much just sort of like ramped up versions of the Google Cardboard. A little bit nicer, they're made of, well, the one that Google have released is made of fabric, so you can wash it, which is surprisingly useful when you give your VR headset to many people who like sweating and are really gross in the headset. Being able to wash them is very valuable, and it's like nobody thinks of. So that's still kind of happening. Google is still pushing it, and it's an open standard where Google are encouraging other manufacturers to also make Google Daydream headsets. So it'd be very similar to Google Cardboard, but a little bit more advanced because you can have a controller and stuff in the space. So you can kind of point at things and have a sword and that sort of stuff, a gun. It makes VR a little bit more immersive. So those headsets aren't going away anytime soon, but when they do go away, it'll be because the smartphone went away. And by that point, I think you'll all have noticed that you didn't need a smartphone anymore. Well, there are patents out for contact lenses with displays in them, but I don't think that means they've actually built any. <laughs> that is true. I think Google have a department of which I forget the name, but they are trying to work on that sort of thing with the contact lens kind of displays. They, I think they're getting somewhere with it, but I think it's still crazy expensive. So even if you wanted to make it like mass market sort of stuff, it'll take a few years because nobody wants to spend many thousands of dollars on contact lenses. So we'll get there, but not yet. That was Patrick Catanzariti, also known as PatCat, founder of DevDiner trying to make emerging tech a little bit more easy to get used to and involved with so you don't get overwhelmed. Read his tutorials and articles on devdiner.com. I've entered Diffusion in the new Castaway Podcast Awards. Please vote for Diffusion by going to www.diffusionradio.com and following the link on the upper right. Voting closes on the 21st of March, 2017. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Go to the website, click on the tab on the right to send a voicemail to be played on air. We need people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Support the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambucca Valley, and three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed this show, then you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. 
You can subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio, where you can also find my interview with Paul Mason. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.